So um, if you're a guest, here's what we've been doing. We've been talking about the subject of depression through the lens of Scripture. Um, and so what we've done thus far is I help to define to you what depression is. It's this, you're in a pit of darkness. It's usually for a prolonged period of time. The, uh, the mental health profession through the diagnostic statistical manual would say it's kind of a two-week period. But you basically, when you're in depression, there is basically, you don't see any way out. It's like you're in a room. It's all dark. There's a door on every wall. But you, you don't seem to even believe the door is there to get out to the light but it's there. But when you're in the pit of darkness, it's like you can't even see your way out. And there's there's many things that you'll see when you're in the pit of darkness. There may be a general kind of suicidal thought. There may be a general, there's no purpose in life. It's usually prolonged. It affects your sleep. It affects your eating. It affects everything. You're usually not motivated to do the things that you need to do. I mean, even I've seen this in many moms who have postpartum depression that they kind of get the gravitational field pulls it in and they've got these lovely kids, this wonderful family, but they don't even want to take part in it. So it, this gravitational field can happen. We've talked to you about the five contributing factors in the scriptures. And sometimes you may have one of these, or sometimes you may have all five of these, or sometimes two or three of these. Depression is usually not just one thing. There's usually multiple things. But here's my, my goal thus far. I've been trying to share the five contributing components. And I've been trying to take case studies. Like we looked at Cain and Abel. We looked at uh, Paul We looked at Elijah, trying to let you see what are the five contributing factors were in their particular scenario of depression. And 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 here's why I want you to know the five. Because if you can know the five, you can more successfully disciple. You can more successfully see, even when your own world or when you're trying to help somebody, you can track down the contributing factors. And and there's hope in that. Because if if depression happens as a result of active sin in our lives, sometimes that's one of those factors. That's one of those five. If there's repentance over that sin, if there's a change of heart that leads to a change of action, a change of belief that results in a change of behavior, then that person, or even if it's us, because we're sinners, right? Did y'all know that? You walked in here, you're sinners. I mean, you're beautiful, but you're sinners. I mean, like, this is going to help us to actually have hope and to crawl out of that pit of despair, Today we're going to look at two people. We're going to look at Joseph and Jonah. Joseph and Jonah. And we're going to look at the contributing factors that led to their... uh, Actually, I would say this. Jonah, we can see some contributing factors towards his depression. He got in a depressive state. Joseph, we actually don't see any evidence that he officially got in some depressive state. But yet... There were some factors that would have led the average person to be in a depressive state when you look at Joseph's life. And I want to point some things out to you about his life. So let's do this. Let's pop over to Genesis and we're going to turn to some scriptures there in a little bit. But just for review, the five contributing factors. And and by the way, what we're going to do is this next week. We're going to look at the medical side of this. We're going to look at Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to look at mental illness. We're going to kind of explore the physical, the medical side that we haven't really explored yet. And then the final week, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking really of wrapping this up with some final, um, some final encouragements of how to fight well depression. And then even what do you do when you're the caretaker of depression? Then I, I think I'm, we're going to close it out and then we're going to be ready to do a study of the Old Testament um, minor prophets. But nonetheless, today I want to keep looking at a case study because I'm, I'm, uh, I want to look at these case studies because I feel like this is going to help you conceptualize this and, and help you actually apply this. It takes some time. 
So I told you the five last week and the week before. One component is the physical, the body. Something's going on with the body. It could be lack of sleep, lack of nutrition. It could be that there's an actual organic disease going on there. It could be the residue from drug abuse. It could be lots of things, poor nutrition, vitamin deficiency, uh, uh, hyperactive thyroid. I mean, there's lots of physical contributions, and we've explored that. We also see that sometimes another contributing factor is sin, our own sin and rebellion against God and actively living in that. Also, it can be how others have sinned against us and our response to that. When others sin against us and others will sin against us, how we respond to that. Uh, do, Do we forgive? We also know that Satan has a part in it, that Satan's temptations can be another contributing factor. We see that in the life of Job. We see that Satan is, 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 uh, God is using Satan as a pawn for a thorn in the flesh towards, uh, Paul. And last is always God, that God may be bringing this sovereignly through his providence in your life for his, for your good, for his glory, so that much people could be brought to him. So that, that is a, a factor. So those are five factors. Now, let's look into the life of Job and take these five factors and see what we can find uh, in his own life. By the way, um, actually, I'm going to save that, so there's no by the way. Let's just go to Joseph. If you don't know the story of Joseph, here's a rundown of basically, and, and here's what I love about Joseph. If there's ever somebody in the Bible who had a classic textbook temptation to get pulled into the gravitational field of depression, it's Joseph. If there's anybody who had the right to just crawl into the pit and never come out, it's Joseph. I mean, here's the story on Joseph. Forsaken by his family, his brothers. His brothers so much dislike him, they sell him into slavery. All right, They make up a story to their dad saying basically the animals got to him. Can you imagine? I know that you may think like your brother or sister were cruel because, you know, they would... You know, they would punch you or they would lock you in a closet or, you know, they would steal your food or whatever, you know, brothers and sisters do to each other. Um, you know, of course, me and my sister, we were so godly, we never fought with each other. But, you know, that you can imagine being sold off, just straight up sold off. How depressing would that be? How forsaken. And not only that, when he is in slavery, he starts to obey. He obeys God. He does what God wants him to do. And then there's a lady that gets her eyes set on him. And uh, that, that Potiphar's wife, he's serving in Potiphar's home. And, and, and he's just doing right. And she wants, she wants him to sleep with her. He says no. She frames him for rape. So not only has he been sold into slavery by his family, family's forsaken him, away in a foreign land, completely away from his culture. Now, now a woman has, has, has framed him and, ra- and, and, and made up a lie about him, about his character, accosted him, said that he had raped, tried to rape her. Now he's thrown into a pit, a literal pit. That's what the scripture talks about. And what's interesting, although Joseph is in a pit, He's not in the pit. Now, it's interesting. If there was ever a person who should have experienced the gravitational fields of depression, it was Joseph. Now, don't think that his the hurts that he'd gone through, like when his brothers sold him into slavery, it reveals over in Genesis 42, 21, when his brothers were talking about what they had done to Joseph in the past, it says that they say this, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw his distress of the soul. When he begged us and we did not listen. So now don't get, don't think that Joseph was unaffected by what they did. It said that when they sold him that Joel, uh, that Joseph had 
distress of the soul and beg them not to sell him. So don't think that all this was easy, like this was just water that rolled off a, a, a duck's back for Joseph. But I don't see any evidence outside of that, that that Joseph ever crawled into a pit enough that he says, take my life, right? I mean, you remember the, the pit that Cain had fallen in where he just said, like, life isn't worth living. It's never going to be right. Or, or Elijah, Lord, take my life. Or in a bit, we're going to look at Jonah where he says, like, take my life. We don't see that in Joseph, although this guy had every right to say that. But he doesn't. So we find when we read through Genesis chapter 37 through 50, we find that Joseph um, just gets to work. He, he obeys God. He does what God wants him to do, even in the midst of it. Like this is how you know you're fighting depression well, is you get up and you go to work. I mean, even though you may not be officially out of the pit, this is one sign how you can know when you're a caretaker, is someone getting better, is they get up and they, they start obeying God and doing the things that God wants them to do. And by the way, when you are in the pit of depression and you just stay in the bed, there, there is something redemptive when you just don't listen to listen to your soul that moment and you put your foot out of the bed and you start obeying God. There's something redemptive to that. Even though your emotions may not be there, your body, when your body goes there, there's a greater chance that you'll start to believe right. So nonetheless, Joseph goes to work. It says in Genesis 39, 3, his master saw that the Lord was with Joseph and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph like gets to work. He starts doing well. Everybody starts to realize that Joseph is actually an industrious guy. So in the midst of this, he's now in prison. And in the pit of this prison, he basically takes a dream, interprets it for the cupbearer. The cupbearer promises to remember Joseph, plead his case to Pharaoh, and maybe Joseph can get out of prison. But like everything in life, not only did his family disappoint him, not only did the master of the house wife disappoint him, but now this guy that he had helped in prison, the cupbearer, who he interpreted a dream for, forgot about him for two years and left him in this pit. But yet in the text of scripture, when you read Genesis, you don't find Joseph in any kind of major depressive episode. What's interesting, if there would have been somebody, it would have been Joseph, right? But nonetheless, what happens is this. The cupbearer tells Pharaoh about this guy in prison that he met who can interpret dreams. So Pharaoh basically gets Joseph. And I love what the text says. The text says in uh, chapter 41, 14, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. I love this. Joseph was in a pit. But he was not in the pit, okay? He was physically in a pit, but not in the pit of despair and depression. So Pharaoh comes and gets Joseph out of prison. Pharaoh now tells him uh, his dream. Joseph interprets that dream that basically there's going to be a seven-year famine. And, and before that seven-year famine, there's going to be seven years of plenteous. And, and it's time to store up and get ready for the famine so that much of the world can be saved at this point. And so Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph and his industry that he puts him over the agricultural, agriculture of Egypt. And basically, Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in the Egyptian kingdom. Now, in all that we read in the text of Genesis... I don't find Joseph going into any major pit. And I would have seen every reason for him to, honestly. When your family has hurt you that bad, when your integrity has been assaulted unjustly, when you have been forgotten and forsaken to all the people who made promises to you in your life, I think I would probably fall into a little bit of a pit. Don't you? I mean, I think I would be there. But we don't see that evidenced in the text of scripture. Now, it's possible that it had and we just 
God didn't give us that, but I just don't see it like I see when God talks about other people in the text of Scripture. So the question I ask myself is this. Why did Joseph, going through all those things, not get pulled into the gravitational field of depression? And just so you know, it's not necessarily, it's like, don't think that, that you're the worst person in the world if you get pulled into the gravitational field of depression. We saw Elijah do it last week. And like, this guy is like one of the big ministry leaders of the Old Testament. But I don't see that in Joseph's life. And here's two reasons why. Now, the five contributing factors to depression, and, and you can have multiple one of these different tentacles. I could clearly say for Joseph, he would have been tempted to be pulled into the gravitational field of depression because of God and other people's sins against him. Okay, clearly, when we read the text of Genesis, chapter 37 through 50, those two things are wide open. God was the cause of what was going on in his world and others sin against him. His brother, Potiphar's wife, the cupbearer. Are you tracking with me on this? So clearly we see two of the five, but yet we don't find him falling into that gravitational field. And I ask myself, why? Why? Well, when you know the five contributing factors, You can also know how should I fight. So if you've got a category how to fight, then you can do better. So Joseph has a category of how to trust God. Joseph has a category of how to respond when others sin against you. So let's look at it. Do this. Go over to Genesis chapter 45. So we find we find Joseph responding to God. So God was the cause of this. And and watch what Joseph his belief about God and how his belief about God actually determines his behavior. What you believe does determine your behavior. So Joseph's brothers are now um, brought to Egypt because the famine has happened back in the land of Israel. And they're, um, they're coming and they're needing resources and they don't know it's Joseph yet. And, and now Joseph reveals himself to them. Now look what happens in verse 4. As Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and they're kind of startled. He says in Genesis 45, verse 4, And Joseph said to his brothers, Come near me, please. And they came near him. Now remember, his brothers had, had, are now finding out like this is Joseph, right? And they came near him and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. Now they're probably right now thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> this, this is a very powerful guy. Uh, and this is our brother. And uh-oh, we did this guy wrong. Now watch what he does. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sowed me here for God. Underline, circle, highlight, check mark that. For God sent me before you to preserve life. So he knows that God is one of the contributing factors of why all this bad has happened to him. But yet he trusts that God is good. He trusts that God is wise, that he's loving All right, you remember that sermon we preached on December the 30th? This is what he's believing. So he says, for God sent me before you to preserve life. By the way, can I just give you a side note? I've heard people say sometimes God allows bad things to happen, but bad things have nothing to do with God. Now, I will tell you in the scripture, the way it writes it sometimes, it it, it almost really seems like, okay, God allowed it. Like with Job... God allowed Satan to do certain things, but God was always the power behind it. If you're ever going to say God allowed something, please, in the back of your mind, realize that when God allows it, it's not one of those haphazard things that his sovereign providence over that whole entire event and series is happening and orchestrating just the way he has always worked out. Like there's no pleasure in me to think 
for uh, honestly that God just allows things to happen and it happens haphazardly. If I'm even going to say the word God, allow that to happen, that, that bad thing in life, I'm at the same time going to recognize that that allowing thing that he allowed, although he may not be the direct agent when it's Satan that does it, I'm, I'm actually going to still say that that allowing is a part of his providence and part of his providence is that he is good and that whatever comes from this situation is going to work out for my good and his glory and I'll sleep well at night. There is no pleasure for me, though, in knowing that Satan can prance about doing what he wants and that God is just some kind of kind of a grandfather that lets his kids get away with whatever they want. And, and if they want to be a little mischievous, he'll just allow it because it's okay for a grandpa to do that. Okay, are you tracking with me? I love that, that his language here, does he act like God just allowed this to happen? No, what does he say? For God sent me before you to preserve life. So he's thinking rightly about God. If you believe right about God, you'll behave rightly in relationship to God. Now look in verse 6. For the famine, he says, has been sent in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvest. And God sent me, verse 7 of Genesis 45, and God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive, for you are many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. Notice he's not saying God just allowed this. He says, it's not you who sent me here in the end, but who? But who? Every reason why Joseph should have been in major depression. We should be reading about him saying, Lord, take my life. I'm done. But what happens? He believes rightly about God's sovereign hand. He believes that God is sovereign, wise, good, and loving. And that pulls him in a way that he's able to, to respond to this. Sometimes when we've crawled into the pit of despair, one of that, those contributing factors is we are not believing right about God. And we don't believe right about his character. It will throw everything off. Go over to Genesis 50. I'll show you this again. Genesis 50. In verse 15. Are y'all okay? Are y'all with me still? You making it? Genesis 50. And look in verse 15. Jacob is dead. Joseph's father is now dead. He brought all of his brothers, all his family over into Egypt. He was taking care of them, giving them the resources of Egypt, making sure that the messianic line was actually going to continue through Israel. And then his dad dies. His brothers think that, whoa, this is Joseph's opportunity to finally get. I mean, Joseph's been saying he's forgiving of us, but this is his opportunity to just go for the jugular now that dad's dead. And they're kind of concerned. Watch what happens in verse 15 of Genesis 50. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. They didn't understand that Joseph's forgiveness was not dependent on them, but was dependent on the Lord. Verse 16. So they sent a messenger to Joseph saying, a messenger, like they couldn't even come themselves. Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of your servants, the God of your fathers. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, now this is what I like. He, although God was a reason for all this happening in his life, he trusted God. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? I mean, honestly, sometimes we think we're God. How do we know? How do, we, how do you know when you think you're God? Is that when you think your way's better than God? I mean, that, that's how it happens. We don't know anything about that, right? 
Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God, I mean, he's not negating their sin. He's not excusing it. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people would be kept alive. And that they, and, that, and as they are today. So here's the deal. He first. God is an obvious factor in this. In the five things, God's an obvious factor. But Joseph actually trusts God and knows and so like he trusts, he says, you meant evil, God meant it good. What is he doing? Joseph is saying this thing that I told you back on December the 30th uh, about God's character, that God in his goodness does what is best. God in his love wills what is best. God in his wisdom knows what is best. And God in his sovereignty has the power to bring it about. So he believes rightly about God and that informs his behavior. And here's how his behavior is informed. The five contributing factors. We obviously know that God was one of them. But also he was sinned against. And I want you to notice something. In all the things that happen, he's very forgiving towards his brothers. Why is he very forgiving towards his brothers? Because he knows God has a plan. You want to know one of the reasons we don't forgive people when they've wronged us, even when they haven't repented of their sin, is because we don't trust that God makes good out of people's evil. You get it? We don't trust that God makes good out of people's evil against us. The evil that has happened to you that people have done that they've never repented of, you can actually forgive that. Why can I tell you that? Because the scriptures tell me over and over that truth. The scriptures declare to me in Colossians 3.13, forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You know, one of the reasons we don't forgive is that we don't trust God. We don't. The greater your trust in God is, the greater you can actually forgive people, even when those people haven't repented of what they've actually done to you. Here's what I love about Joseph. Look over at Genesis 41 and verse 50. Genesis 41 and verse 50. Because he had a right view of God. Now listen guys, I'm just telling you, we should see more, we should see at least an episode of Joseph saying, take my life, Lord. It's enough. We don't see it. He believes rightly about God. That informs his behavior. It leads to him being able to forgive his brothers way ahead of time. So much so that when the Lord gives him two children, just a side note, by the way, just about everybody was polygamous, but Joseph wasn't. He just had one wife. People say to me all the time, like, hey, the Bible's for polygamy. Like, no, it wasn't. That's not how God ever established it. These guys were going off and acted wonky and getting in their own sin. I love that Joseph seems to be a one woman man. So if you ever just need a pattern, here it is. But nonetheless, the Lord gives him two children from his wife. Now look what he names these children. This shows you his, how his belief determined his behavior. Verse 50 of Genesis 41. Behold, the year of the famine came. Two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardships. And all my father's house. Just so you know, forgiveness, you know when you've forgiven somebody and when you're no longer bringing the matter up to yourself. You're no longer bringing the matter up to yourself. Joseph names his son in a way to say, I'm not bringing this up. The Lord has made me forget. I'm not bringing this up anymore. I'm not replaying this thing. Do you see how he's, by the way, this is how biblical change works. You 
put off the unrighteous thought, you replace it with the righteous thought, which then means the unrighteous action starts to come off and the righteous action starts to come off. So he believes rightly about God. He puts that on and thus he puts off the bitterness and anger that could come. And even right here, instead of recalling and rehearsing what his brothers have done, he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give myself a reminder to put off the unrighteous and put on the righteous. I'm going to name one of my sons in such a way when I say his name, I'm going to be reminded that the Lord has made me forget all the bad that's happened to me. I'm going to keep replacing it. I'm not going to bring it up. I'm not going to keep rehearsing it in my mind. If it comes up in my mind, I'm going to replace that thought. He does it with how he names his kids. Look in verse 52. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. He's replacing again. He's giving a positive thought over that negative thought. A righteous thought over that unrighteous thought of, of anger and vengeance and rage that would come from what, he had, what had happened to him. Now, how does he do this? Because he had a right belief about God, it led to a right behavior. And that behavior, he was now able to actually forgive. So much so when his brothers show up on the scene and they're confessing their sin, he's like, listen, guys, it's okay. You're going to be okay. Like God meant this for good. I'm okay. Now, why? Now, we should have saw him pulled into the field of the gravitational fields of depression, but he fought it well. This is why I keep using these case studies to show you the five contributing factors, because I want you to know that when you identify those factors, when you can get to it, you now have a category many times on how to fight well. He fought well. And he passed the test well. He did well. I love that about Joseph. By the way, uh, what Joseph was doing is what we're called to do. The Bible tells us that if we're not forgiving, that the Lord won't forgive us. Now, that doesn't mean he'll take away your salvation. That means that he will discipline you. You know that some people who are in severe depression, they're in severe depression. Listen to me. I've been with a lot of people and counsel a lot of people. Some people are in severe depression Because they've been sinned against and they're not forgiving those people. And the Lord will discipline a follower of him who is not forgiving. Why? Because to not forgive somebody is being the absolute opposite of what Jesus has given you. The main thing all of us need in life is the forgiveness of God because we're sinners. We don't extend that to others. And remember, you're being unforgiving Forgiveness is not just a word you say, although that's a behavior that, that happens when you, when you forgive. You forgive when you no longer bring the matter up to yourself, that person, or anybody else. I mean, just between you and the Lord, you're not bringing that up. And you only bring it up if you're trying to reconcile with that person. Outside of that, you don't keep bringing it up to yourself, and you replace that thought. The Bible tells us to do this. It says in Ephesians 4, 31 through 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. So this is, this is what unforgiveness does. It, it gets sinfully angry. So it says, put off bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, malice, slander. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. Even the scriptures say, Put off those unrighteous, bitter thoughts. Put on the righteous thoughts. Put on the fact that Jesus has forgiven you of all and you can forgive everybody of all. I'm telling you, you might be here today and you might be in the pit of despair. And friend, the reason you're in the pit of despair may be unforgiveness towards what others have done to you. And my friend, may I submit to you the case study of Joseph. May I submit to you, get your soul in Genesis 37 through 50 and see what God can do 
when a right belief determines your behavior. Okay, are you with me? Now do this. Look at Jonah. Y'all okay? Okay, look at Jonah. You got to start turning the other way in your Bible. Start making your way towards the minor prophets. Jonah. You'll see Joel. You'll see Jonah. I love Jonah. This guy's amazing. So what's interesting is this. Here's Jonah. We don't have to spend much time on him because I think, uh, actually I think of all the stories you may know, Jonah's probably the one that most people know overall, right? So here's the deal. Jonah finds himself in the pit of despair. I want you to look at chapter four. Look at chapter four in verse one. And it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. Basically, Jonah had just preached a message to the unbelieving Ninevites who became followers. And Jonah was upset about it. The reason he was upset about it is because he, he doesn't, he kind of has some of the political gospel views where he really just wants God's blessing on Israel. He doesn't want it on Nineveh because Nineveh is a part of the Syrian empire. There's prophecies out there that Assyria is going to come conquer Israel. He didn't think that God's blessings could come for Israel and for these Gentile, unbelieving Assyrian Ninevites. And so he kind of had a lot of ethical prejudice against these people. And he was really actually discouraged that the Lord would send him to these people because he actually knew that God was good. He actually knew what his character was like. He just didn't like it and knew that if he went to these Ninevites and told them about the message of the gospel, that actually they might get saved. Okay, Uh, this guy's a quandary. He's like the most successful evangelist ever who was reluctant to do it at all. It's hilarious and sad at the same time. So watch what happens. They repent. And in chapter four, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, (laughs) Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Do you remember that that God said go to Nineveh, preach to him? He decides to go the other direction, go to Tarshish. He's on a boat and basically they throw him overboard and he gets swallowed up and he's in the belly of a fish for three days because he's basically running from God. And, And then the Lord spits him out of that fish when he's ready to repent and go preach the gospel to Nineveh. Just so you know, he didn't even do a very great presentation. Okay. But the Lord just saved him anyways. And he said this, this is why I made haste to flee to uh, Tarshish for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relentless from disaster. He at least is believing right, but yet his own sin won't let him apply it right. He has anger and self-pity and malice towards a people that are not his own. Verse three, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. He, he basically preached to 120,000 people that we don't know how many, but many of them came to, came to the Lord. And he's upset about it because the Lord did not do things his way. He didn't think that the Lord could bless him, could bless them and Israel. He was wanting Israel to look like Solomon's kingdom again. And, and he was afraid that if these people repented and they started to become strong, like what's, what's the future look like for Israel? Verse four, the Lord said to him, do you do well to be angry? So you see his own sin. Contributing factors for Jonah was sin, his own personal sin and his view of God. His view of God. He knew God intellectually right, but he didn't like it. See, like you can know God is sovereign and wise and good and loving and not like it. 
You can know that God is in control of everything and say like, yeah, you may be in control of everything, God, but I don't like your control. My control is much better. That's Jonah. Verse five, Jonah went out from that city. He kind of was going outside the city, hoping that the kind of like a Sodom and Gomorrah kind of situation was going to rain down on them and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade so he should see what would become of that city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. You see the depression here? That he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. You see this, right? Here's Jonah. Preached the message that he was reluctant to preach, but because he knew that God was good, God saves people. And now he's in a major state of depression again. He's saying, Lord, take my life. Now, here's the interesting thing. When we track down the five contributing factors, what do we see in Jonah's life? Sin and God. And his response to God was wrong. It was sinful. And thus he spirals down and down and down and down. And even look, look at this. Look in chapter 3. Look how he preaches to these people. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. So now he's going to Nineveh, the great city in chapter 3. And called out against it, and he said, Call out against it in the message that I will tell you. So Jonah rose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. When you look in the text, that's all it records that he says. What a great gospel, what a great presentation, right? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What a poor, lackadaisical, resistant presentation. But I love that God's character goes so far. Because look what happens in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh did what? Believe God. Hey, by the way, just a side note. If you're afraid that a poor gospel presentation will just not get the job done, friend, have hope, right? I mean, he... What a reluctant. I mean, maybe, maybe that's just what you need to do if you want to tell more people about Jesus. Just have a bad attitude about it, right? And God, just to, just to put you in your place, will probably save people all over the world. Scratch that. Erase that. That's, don't do that. But it's comical. I mean, <laughs> he doesn't even want to do it, and the Lord saves him. <laughs> Look at this. The people, verse 5, believe God. They called a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When you keep reading chapter 3, the king gets a hold of this. The people are repenting in mass. Then we come to chapter 4, and, and, and he is upset with God. He's like, God, I knew that you were good. I knew that you were merciful. This is exactly why I didn't want to go tell them this. All right, It just boggles my mind. The most successful evangelistic campaign ever probably on the planet. Like Probably 120,000 people come to faith. I'll show you why, because look in verse 9. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being at night and perish at night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know their right hand them from their left, also much cattle. So God just says, like, you care about this plant. Like, should I not care about people? Like 120,000 people can, can be saved, can come to the Lord through this. 
Now, when you track this all down, what you find is this. He was depressed. Why? Because he intellectually knew the character of God. He didn't like it. He also, number two, had his own sin and wouldn't repent of it. Now, do you know some of our depression today could be this? We don't like God and we don't want to repent of our sin. And we can spiral out of that depression just like, you know, it's just interesting. We don't see anything after this. Did Jonah spiral up out of this? I think so, just from the fact that many would say he was the writer of this book. But here's why I love this even more. Who gets the last word here? Who gets the last word in Jonah? God does, right? Hey, worship team, you can start coming. I want to tell you guys something. The last word in Jonah is God. I think in the end, Jonah probably did repent. I think he probably did crawl up out of this depression, this reluctant, successful evangelist. And here's why. Because the writer of this book, the last word in this is God. And when God gets the last word, usually a person can crawl out of that pit of despair. And what for our life needs to happen sometimes is the last word's got to be God's word. I mean, this is the reason why we're continually pointing you back this book back to why like your hope in Jesus is dependent like will you get in this book will you let it immerse will you believe what it has to say and you know what even I like that the last word of this book is God because when I look at my salvation the last word on my salvation is the gospel in fact the last word that Jesus said on the cross anybody know it is what finished it's done it's been taken care of See, this is why the gospel is so important for our life to fight depression. Because when the gospel has the last word, when Jesus has the last word, when it is finished is the last word, all the doubts we have about God's goodness fade away. And even though there might be evil in our world or other though people have hurt us, we can know that whatever people hurt us, God is for us. Because why would God not be for us if he would not hold back his son and pour out his wrath on his son in our place? Like I can think of no better reason today if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that you would repent because God wants to pull you up out of that pit of despair where you're at today. And I love that the last word on this is God's word. And the last word for us is Jesus' word. It is finished. Your depression can be finished. And the gospel, when it has the last word in your life, it can be finished. So here's what we're going to do. I think this is a great segue for us to even take some communion this morning. Because when we take communion, you're reminding yourself of the gospel. When you take it, you're reminding yourself of the body and the blood of Jesus sacrificed in your place. So whatever depressive state a person can be in, when they take communion, it's a reminder to your soul. Remember, when you're in depressions, like even though your soul may have a hard time believing it, you keep reminding your soul of it. Like today, if you're even slip back into that pit, you might need to take communion just to remind yourself that Jesus is, God is for me, not against me. Like if he took my wrath in my place, how could I not think that he has good plan for me? I mean, even though your body may be failing, although your flesh may be weak, although it seems like life is decaying around you, you can still actually say like, Lord, I know you have good for me. The work of the cross is my justification. I am going to be okay. Are you with me? You're going to be okay. Do this. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing. When I pray, there's going to be some guys come down here. They're going to grab these elements and then they're going to pass them out while we're singing. Then I'm going to come up and lead us through. And if you're a guest with us, you just grab one cup and and everything's right there. The bread's underneath. Lord, would you bless 
as we sing and as we take the Lord's Supper, just for a moment, may we let you have the last word in this Lord's Supper. May we let you have the last say. May we have let you, may we reflect back on the words of the cross, it is finished, and may we glory in you. And may this truth help to help us to take one more crawl out of the pit of despair. And we'll trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.